When we see churches that profess all the right things and say all the right things, yet they're infected with unconfessed sin by unrepentant people, we should naturally ask questions like, how how can they not see it? But allowing sin to continue in our midst for the sake of not offending people numbs us to it as it did them. All it really takes is a a couple of years of this type of mentality to make it painfully hard to change directions. What we need to see today is that if we as a church refuse to confront sin in each other's lives, we will end up no differently than these types of churches. So numb to the sin destroying our church that it won't matter how theologically rich of a foundation the leaders of our church lay out for us today. It won't matter how good we are at making the Bible central in all of our teaching. If we refuse to be obedient in this area, then this church that we're building for our children will one day be one that real Christians from the outside look in and say, How do they not see it? Don't they read their Bibles? Don't they know they need to obey it? Brothers and sisters, we must deal with this now. Already this is becoming an issue in areas in our church. And the longer we wait, the harder it will be. So it is with this urgency that I would invite us now to read our Bible together with the mindset that we must obey it. So our text is Galatians 6.1, but I want to start reading in chapter 5, verse 16, so you can see kind of the flow of thought that leads into it that Paul has. Galatians 6.1, but starting in verse 5.16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things... There is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. 
When I use the word confront, uh, as I did in the, in the title in your bulletin and in the outline, when we talk about confronting sin in the church, uh, we're not really using it in relation, if you look it up in the dictionary, uh, in relation to the, to the first definition, which has more to do with opposition. There, there, is, there is some of that implied. But the second definition, uh, which says to bring someone face to face with. This is what we're talking about. This is what we're really trying to do in this situation. We're trying to bring people face to face with the truth of the situation that they're in. To put truth before them so that they have no choice but to respond to it in some way. We're not in opposition to each other. We only stand in opposition to sin and its harmful effects. So you look in your outline of four points. Number one, the context for confronting sin. Number two, who is it to be confronted? Who is to be confronted? Number three, who is to confront? And four, how confrontation is to be done. So first point, con- the context for confrontation. Context for confrontation. And for this point, I, I want to make... Uh, I want to make this point from Paul's use of the word brothers and, and only that. The word brother, Adelphoi, or from the word Adelphos where we get Philadelphia, you know, brotherly love. It's, it's a word that means brother. Not someone like a brother, but an actual brother. I think that this is an important context that we need to have when we have this conversation. Because a lot of times when we're reading our Bibles, we kind of just skip right over this term like, like normal type of Christian language. And we don't remember the tremendous implications that it has. The term uh, kind of has been hijacked a little bit by the world so that a lot of people use it to describe someone who they're really close to that might not be a blood relative. People may say it about a best friend they've had their whole life. A lot of times people, uh, you'll hear it in military contexts, to describe those who have been brought together through an impossibly difficult situation. And I don't want to disparage those types of experiences or those types of feelings. I absolutely uh, believe that that those type of of bonds can be formed and that they're true and that they're helpful. Uh, But what I do want to point out is that as powerful as those feelings and experiences and those situations might be, they are feelings and experiences, but... Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have been made a real family. It's not just a feeling of closeness that we share, it's a reality. Let's not lose sight of the truth that we celebrated in communion last week. The blood in our veins that unites us to our physical family, it pales in comparison to the uniting power of the blood of Christ that brings us together as a spiritual family, as a family of God. Those of us who have seen the truth of our sin, who have seen that the just punishment for our rebellion against God is nothing less than being on the receiving end of the wrath of God for all of eternity. And then to see that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ and satisfied that wrath, 
through the shedding of His own blood. Those of us who understand this and then turn from our sins and put our trust in that sacrifice, not only have we been redeemed and brought into fellowship with God, We've also been brought into an unbreakable fellowship with one another. This is why, this is why what Brett was saying to us a couple of weeks ago, remember about the priority of church family over our physical family is absolutely true and right. And, and those, are, those are so important to go back and listen to and to understand in context of, of what we're talking about today. He served us well in that. And this is why it's so necessary to do what He charged us to do. By continually having each other into our homes and getting together. It's a demonstration of the understanding of this reality. It's something that needs to happen, frankly, to make what we are going to talk about today more effective in embracing this reality. The reality that one of the primary purposes of the present reality of our flesh and blood families is to point us to the much greater reality of our eternal spiritual family. It's there to help us to understand a little better how we're to relate to each other. Therefore, you had better never fail to do for a brother or sister in Christ what you would do for a member of your physical family. You don't let people in your family starve. You don't let them go homeless. And if something harmful has a hold on their life, you get in there and you do something about it. This needs to be our thinking when we see a brother or sister caught in a sin. You and I, we can't say that we love a person and then leave them in their sin. Not if we really understand what sin is. I couldn't say that, that I loved my daughter while sitting back and letting her play in a busy street. I wouldn't just stand there and think, you know, she shouldn't be doing that, but you know, who am I to get involved in her business? I'm her father. That's who. I'm not just going to sit around while she plays with something so dangerous. When someone in the church is caught in sin, you don't just sit back and say, well, that's not good, but what business is it of mine to get involved there? What business is it of mine? It's family business. You're his brother. You're her sister. If you can just sit there and observe it and not do anything about it, then it is a sign that you don't really understand the truth about what the gospel has actually accomplished in us. So we, we confront with that context. Family. Real family. We are a real family. Second point. Second point, who is to be confronted? Who is to be confronted? Anyone, according to this passage, anyone who is caught in any transgression is the answer. But we know that the anyone here is in reference to believers, right? Because we, um, 
because of the whole context of the book being written to believers, but also because we don't talk about unbelievers as those who get caught in a particular sin. And if you read all the way through the whole book of Galatians, you'll see that uh, we don't refer to unbelievers that way. We refer to them as those who are slaves to sin. They don't get caught in a particular sin. They are slaves to their sinful nature. That is who they are. This letter is written to a church, so we know it's to believers. In verse 2 here, it says that we're supposed to be doing this type of thing for one another. One another in the church. But we also know this just based on the logic through what the rest of the book uh, and the Bible says about unbelievers. Unbelievers don't stumble over sin. They're enslaved to sin. In fact, much damage has been done by Christians who try and help an unbeliever with just one particular sin. It's a truly horrible method of evangelism when you see someone who's an unbeliever in sin and then you work to free them from one particular grievous sin without pointing to their need for a Savior from all of their sin. Best case scenario, you make someone who is no longer an alcoholic but still going to hell. Shows a misunderstanding of sin and the state of all mankind because all, all we are able to do apart from Christ is replace sinful behavior with other sinful behavior. So when talking to an unbeliever, you're to help them to see their total depravity, their desperate need for Christ, not focus on one particular sin, maybe use some sins to point out their need for Christ, but they need to see their total depravity. So we're talking about fellow believers here. Specifically, those who have been caught in a trespass or sin. This doesn't mean like I caught someone. Like I saw Wayne. He was in line at the grocery store. He was getting unrighteously angry. I caught him. Caught you, Wayne. Saw it. It's not, it doesn't mean like I, I saw it and I caught him. Caught him doing it. That, no, the idea here, it, Wayne wasn't doing that, by the way. Just clear that up. We're talking about fellow believers here. Those, they're caught in a trespass. They're caught in a sin. It's not that way, but it's rather from the Greek word uh, prolambano, uh, which is a word that has the implication of, of being overtaken by something. There's, there's an element of surprise to it, like, like you've been ambushed and caught. And this is typically how it happens to a Christian. As a believer, hopefully as a believer, you don't plan out and try and figure out ways to sin. If that's the case, then you have every reason to question your salvation. We don't plan out ways to sin. Typically, they, they grow steadily. So as, as we talk about this point, I want you to think about the fact that this could be you right now. And it surely will be you at some point in time. That is, that's part of the warning of verse 3 that we're not covering, but I'll point to. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Keep this in mind about yourself. You never, ever reach a place in this life where you are not susceptible to being overtaken by a sin. 
And a spiritual maturity is not becoming invincible to the threat of sin. That's not what spiritual maturity means in you know, this side of heaven. It is having a heart that is so sensitive to the threat of sin and the reality of its fellowship-destroying power that any time anyone thinks they might see some sort of sin in you, you don't get defensive. You take it absolutely seriously. Because you have this understanding. You know it can start small and grow and grow. And as you allow it, it becomes, you become calloused to it. You become numb to it. Before long, you've been captured by it. You don't even realize it really. Maybe you've thought about it or you, you've kind of come to terms with that. Eh, it, is, it is wrong, but over time, as you dismiss that, you become numb. You're able to make excuses for it about how oh, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's not that big a deal, maybe. So that's, that's the thing you need to understand. Is that if there is a sin in you, that has overtaken you in some way, you are in no position to judge your own actions in that area. You need, you need someone with an unbiased perspective based on the Word of God, someone who is observing from the outside. You need that. So you should not recoil then at the mercy of God when He provides a brother or sister in Christ to point this out to you. It's the mercy of God. You cannot be regenerate. You cannot be a Christian in any real sense of the word if you have never come to a place where, you, where you've looked upon your sin in horror and then turned from it to look to Christ on the cross overflowing with thankfulness for what He did for you because of that sin. So when someone does confront you, don't respond like someone who doesn't understand those truths. Don't start judging that person's motives. Just focus on what they've said. In almost every situation, in almost every situation, that person who's confronting you does not want to be talking to you about this. They don't. And it's, and it's only been through probably much prayer and maybe some tears and, and courage that's come through reading Scripture that they've been able to come to you with this at all. If you're going to assume anything about them, assume that. Don't, don't do this either. Don't point to the sin of someone else or the sin in the person talking to you as a way to justify yourself. Just because you can identify other people's sin what does that have to do with whether or not you're guilty of what they are bringing to your attention? Nothing. Don't behave like the world when this happens. Behave like you understand the gospel. Don't go find the people you know. And this is a temptation that we all have. We, have, we all have people we know who we know are too scared to ever say something that could possibly offend us. And then we go to them with something like this and we essentially gossip about the person who confronted us. 
and say something like, can you believe that so-and-so would say that about me? And they maybe laugh and assure you and build you up and say, oh, no, you're not like that. And then you and your little group of friends just kind of laugh about the whole thing and then go back to your normal conversation blow the whole thing off. Maybe even build a little bit of bitterness towards that person. Maybe they lose some of their credibility in your eyes. You do that and never even consider the very issue that God brought that person to confront you with. Just find your way around it. Don't even hang out with friends like that. They're never willing to wound you for the greater good. You believe the truth of Proverbs 27, 5 and 6? Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Enemy, those people in that situation are not your friends. They're acting as an enemy. They're not your real friends. You need to have the discernment to not surround yourselves with people like that who just flatter you all the time. And if, that's, and if that's your family, if that's how all your family is, then that's all the more reason to draw closer to your church family. Why would you be so easily offended by what someone else says to you? Why would you? It could only be because you've lost sight of an eternal perspective in that moment. It's the only reason, if you're a believer. Because you hate sin, right? Don't you? You can't be a Christian and not hate sin. Don't, don't you, as a Christian, pray prayers like the one we read in Psalm 139, 23 and 24? You've heard this before. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If this is truly the prayer of your heart, that you want God to remove all sin and wickedness from your life, then don't rebel and complain and defend yourself against His primary means of accomplishing this, which are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Loving rebuke from them. That's how he does this. You remember one of, one of the most famous sins in the Bible? When David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband Uriah murdered. You've heard that story, right? And how did God handle that situation? He sent Nathan the prophet. And David's response were the words we read to begin the service from Psalm 51. That's how he responded. Our response should be like David's. Not focused on the person saying the words, but the God who is behind those words. Even, even if we don't initially think that there's anything to what they're saying. Doesn't it make sense? Doesn't it make sense that a person with a David-like heart towards sin, a heart like the one reflected in Psalm 51, would take every single, every single possibility of sin in their own life absolutely seriously. Doesn't that make sense? 
If there's been, for instance, if there's been a, a string of robberies in our neighborhood, and as my wife and I are getting ready to go to bed, she says, as she actually often does to me, I think the front door was still unlocked. And even if I'm pretty sure I locked the door, even if I am almost certain of it, like even if I maybe have a memory of it, I'm going to go check it again. Because my wife, whom I love, and who loves me, and who loves our whole family, thinks that I should. I'm going to check it. Even if she were to have said that in a mean way, I'm still going to do it. But she doesn't. She says it very lovingly. <laughs> How then can we not accept the loving observations of our spiritual family when they try to warn us of something that is of a much more serious danger? Much more serious. How can we respond differently? So, who is to be confronted? Those who get caught in a sin, which will be one, which will be you, which will be all of us at some point in time. So, if you don't think about this, if you don't experience brothers and sisters in Christ ever confronting you in your sin, what do you think is the more likely reason that you have never had a sinful pattern in your life that needs correction? Or that maybe there's something about you that makes it extra hard for people to try and help you in this regard. Pray that you would have a heart like David's in Psalm 51. Next point. Who is to confront? Who is to confront? And the answer is right there. You who are spiritual. You who are spiritual. This is... This has nothing, you don't get off the hook by going, oh, I'm not spiritual. Pastors are spiritual, I'm not spiritual. I'm just a guy. No, this has nothing to do with a special class of Christians. That's why we read the whole context of 5.16 on through. This is why we read that scripture, 5.16 and following. The spiritual are those whom Paul has just got done describing. Those who are walking by the Spirit, verse 16. Those who are led by the Spirit, verse 18. Those whose lives demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit rather than the works of the flesh. Those who are living by the Spirit are Christians. This is part of what it means to be walking by the Spirit. We are to read this verse as the original recipients did. The original recipients of Galatians, they didn't have chapter 6 starting there. They didn't pause at the end of 5 and go have a coffee break and come. They read it like this. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. They didn't stop and take a break. They heard that all the way through. There's almost an implied therefore in there. If you're walking by the Spirit, then of course, of course your response is going to be to restore a brother who has fallen into sin. How could that not be your response? One of the people who comes across worse than most people in the Bible is uh, the Pharisee from Jesus' parable in Luke 18. 
Remember what, what the Pharisee says? He's, there's the tax collector and the Pharisee are coming um, and, they're, and they're both praying from 18 verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. If you see a brother caught in sin, and your attitude is to just look at him and be glad that maybe you're not involved in that same sin, how are you any better than this Pharisee? In fact, aren't you a little worse? Because the Pharisee doesn't even claim to have a relationship with this guy, but you do. The Pharisee has this attitude toward the sin and others. They have this sort of attitude, but the believer has an understanding of sin the way that Paul in Romans 15.1, he puts it, he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That's how we're to be. If we see that we're not sinning in the same way, our response should be, I have an obligation to go to this brother. Not please myself and do the easy thing. There is no class of spiritually elite people that this responsibility is for. This, re- this is the responsibility of all who have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Those who belong to God listen to God. They obey Him. They go to the people that He sends them to. Why why did Nathan go to David in the first place? Because the Lord sent him. 2 Samuel 12.1 Because the Lord sent him. God told him to go. So those of us who are uncomfortable with this idea of confronting sin... We at least think that if we were like Nathan, if we were in his position, and God specifically told us of a situation and specifically sent us there, then we'd obey, right? Well, who do you think authored this command? Or did you stop believing in divine inspiration when it comes to commands like this? Don't be tempted to think Don't be tempted to think that this topic that we're talking about today is a controversial thing. It's not a controversial topic. There's nothing controversial about it. It is a crystal clear command and expectation that the Lord has for His church. Crystal clear. So with that, let let me just finish up this point by reminding you of Jesus' words in Luke 6.46 that Travis has brought up the last couple weeks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? So who is to confront? You are. You are. Last point. Last point. How is confrontation to be done? How is it to be done? I have a few sub-points here. First, it's to be done with restoration in mind. Done with restoration in mind. The Greek word here, katarizo, it's the idea of mending or repairing. 
and connotes the idea of restoring someone to a previous condition. This implies then that there was a usefulness to the body of Christ that this person had that, that, that's being interfered with now because of this sin. It's, it's damaging their ability to minister to the body of Christ like they could if it weren't there. This is the imperative in this verse. This is the command in this verse that we are to restore. And it uses language, language like restore that implies that it's done in a caring way. This is not provoking each other. Paul just said this in 5.26. He said, not provoking each other. So this can't be defined as being something that provokes someone. Now this is right in step with what he taught in 5.13 and 14. 5.13 and 14. Look at that real quick. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This, that is an application. This is an application of that point. Loving your neighbor as yourself. This is, this is going to people and doing this, is a self-sacrificing act of love. Because as we just talked, it's not something that hopefully comes naturally to you, and it's not something that you like to do. If you like to do it, then that is another sin that will be addressed in some sermon, probably in the Sermon on the Mount somewhere. Now, it's an act that flows out of the generation of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There are aspects of all of those uh, all of those different fruits involved in one believer restoring another believer that is caught in sin. It's loving because you recognize the danger that sin is. There's joy because there's joy in restoring a brother and in seeing the kingdom of God restored to full effectiveness. There's peace that comes. Right? There's peace that comes from from getting sin out of the way in the relationship between someone and God. There's patience involved in that. Sometimes it takes a while, and it's not just one confrontation, but it's checking on them and coming alongside them and walking with them. Kindness in that this is the kind thing to do, like removing a splinter that's going to get infected from a child who is screaming. Kind to do it even if they don't want it. Goodness. Because it's the good thing to do. It's the best. It's not damaging. It's good. And faithfulness and, and the understanding that um, this is what God has called us to do. Be faithful to Him in it. And gentleness, and we'll talk more about that in a second, but, but a spirit of caring for someone will imply this in self-control and that it's not something that's fun to do, but we do it anyway. Aspects of all of these involved in one believer restoring another. And kaderitzo is, is a word also that is used to describe, frequently it's used to describe setting a broken bone. 
And I think that's a really good illustration to describe what's going on in this process. I said, we might be doing something, we might be doing something that's painful. It might be painful, but it is not damaging. It's not damaging. In fact, it's the opposite of damaging. It's putting things back the way they are supposed to be. And just like setting a bone, the longer you wait, the harder it is, the more painful it is, the more it draws out the whole process. If you don't set a bone pretty quickly, it starts to heal the wrong way and it starts growing in a really awkward direction. And sometimes this can get pretty bad. And you can maybe, if you haven't seen it before, you can imagine the type of weird angles that a broken bone might start growing in if it's never set properly. And how obvious it is to everyone looking that there's something wrong with that guy's arm. That is not how it's supposed to look. Many times, uh, doctors who, from like Doctors Without Borders who travel to some of these un, uh, underdeveloped countries, they go in and they discover that this has happened. They, they find people who broke a bone at a young age and have grown up and it's, it's healed wrong and they don't have the right use and it looks it's disfigured and it sticks out and it looks bad. And what they have to do is they have to re-break the bone in order to set it properly. When this, when this happens, it's a far more painful process than if it had been done right the first time. So that's a good illustration because this is a major issue that we have to face in the church. Because if this hasn't been done well, then you have a bunch of people walking around who have been growing in the wrong way for a while. And the longer they've been doing it, the more obvious it's becoming to everyone around and the more damaging it is to the witness of the church. Because no one's taken the time or had the courage to help restore a believer caught in sin. They have developed a callousness to it. They've developed bad habits. They've developed excuses to help them continue in it. If we are being loving then, we will act as soon as possible. Maybe a day or two for prayer and consideration. We won't let it go on for long before we say something. And since it can be painful, and often is painful in some way, it brings us to the second of the subpoints of this point that how this is to be done. It's to be done with a spirit of gentleness. It's to be done with care and concern. So all the gentleness you'd expect from a good doctor setting a bone. So my son broke his thumb in early April. We took him to the doctor. And he went into the waiting room. And the doctor didn't just walk in the room without saying anything, yank his thumb into place, and then leave. No, they're, they're gentle. They observed it. They put a cast on it. They have him back for another appointment to make sure that it's growing the way it's supposed to grow. That's what we mean by gentleness. It implies genuine concern that this person be free from this thing that they may or may not know is damaging them and is, and is damaging the whole body of Christ. Gentleness has nothing to do, lest you get this command confused, 
with being weak or passive. It has everything to do with the amount of concern and empathy with which we approach that situation. It does not mean that we're not to be firm if we have to, and it doesn't mean that we don't press the issue if they don't respond right. On the contrary, we're so concerned with the issue that we can't just drop it. We love them too much for that. Paul loved the Galatians. And that love manifested itself in his great concern that they not fall into sin, into the sin of believing a different gospel. And in doing this, throughout the letter to the Galatians, he uses terms that sometimes sound more or less loving. But all of them express the same love and concern that he has for them. He frequently calls them brothers, as we just pointed out. There's brothers in there. But he also, if you look at Galatians 3.1, he calls them foolish Galatians. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? All the terms he uses, all of them, from foolish Galatians to brothers, are based on his loving concern for them. If the person that you are confronting is immediately receptive and they begin to repent immediately, then you begin helping them take steps immediately. And you walk alongside them. But if they're still blind to it, you might have to be a little more strong in your condemnation of their sin. Not in them, but in their sin. You do whatever you can to help them wake up. To help them snap out of it. And see and understand the seriousness of the sin that has trapped them. And the effects that it's having not only on them, but on their family, and on the church, and on the body of Christ. So we go to them with a spirit of gentleness, understanding that this isn't talking about a methodology, but having a heart that truly wants what's best for that person, whatever the cost to ourselves. Third little sub-point there is that it's to be done while keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. This doesn't necessarily mean so that you don't fall into the same sin as they have, though there are some uh, sometimes some situations where that is a concern. If you struggle with the same sin that they're struggling with, but you know it, you might not want to get too involved in that situation, but take a brother alongside you. Based on the context of this passage, though, especially verse 3, that we read a little while ago, it seems to indicate that we need to watch and make sure that we are not becoming arrogant and that we have a proper sense of humility when we're doing this. The reason you're doing this is because God has allowed you the privilege. Rather than sending you to hell, He is allowing you to be an instrument that He uses to preserve holiness in His church. It's not because you're something special. Now you go in with the attitude of, but for the grace of God, so go I. You do it knowing that one day, prayerfully, God will mercifully use someone, maybe even this same person, to help you the same way you're helping them. 
And how do you want them to come to you on that day? We live in a culture that has been trained by talk shows that, that other people's problems can just be seen as a form of entertainment to us. Talk shows like that flourish. They bring on someone with a problem. They try and address the problem. But really the point is so we can all stand back and see, wow, look how messed up that guy is. We can just stand back and marvel at what they've gotten themselves into and maybe nudge our friend and joke with him about it. That's the world's way. We cannot be that way. Now we see the problem for what it is. It's a sin and it's standing in the way of what our brother or, or sister truly desires if they're really in Christ. They don't want this. They may be struggling through it. They may be responding wrongly to it. But they don't want this. We just might have been blinded to that. We see it as a sin, an obstacle that is hampering the witness and effectiveness, not just of that person, but of the body of Christ in general. We need to understand this, and we need to long for God's glory to be magnified in the restoration of this member and of our family to full usefulness to the body of Christ once again. Brothers and sisters, our, our elders are doing an amazing job of building a rock-solid theological foundation for us here at Grace. We have deep teaching available to us in so many avenues. And we have every opportunity to be a, tr- to be, to be a church that is, that is truly, strongly equipped with everything we need to be a powerful force for the kingdom of God. A church of saints fully equipped for every good work. But if we are not diligent to be obedient to this command, all that hard work to establish this church in the truth will mean nothing one day. All that truth will only serve to make our condemnation greater. We'll be a church where people come in, visit us for a while, and then conclude, all that stuff that they say they believe, all that stuff they say is important, that must not actually matter to them that much. Lord God, help us to be found faithful in this matter. Lord, help us. Help us if we forget that this is our family. This is our family. Lord, don't let us be blind to sin and its effects. Don't let us dismiss it. God, build our conviction against it. That we, when we see brother and sister in sin, would be grieved to our core and go to them and try and help them through it. We take this with absolute seriousness. In Jesus' name.